What's the but, podcast? Uh, his name's uh, Libertarian Dad. Oh, okay. So he's just doing a libertarian. So this is the, the promo of a new dad. Yeah. How old is what's his style? He's <laughs> much more highbrow than we are for sure. Oh yeah. Nice. Blech. Uh, hello. Oh, excuse me, sir. I'm kind of in the middle of recording a podcast on the Virginia rally. You're gonna have to hold on my calls. Very good. Carry on, sir. <laughs> Carry on. Hi, everybody. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about Liberty Dad. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. It is not enough to talk about liberty. One must believe it. It is not enough to believe in liberty. One must work at it. It is not enough to work at liberty. One must convince others likewise. Reimagining how we do politics. Welcome to Liberty Dad. Welcome to episode four of Liberty Dad Podcast, where we reimagine how we do politics by exploring a different approach. I'm your host, DL. If you're wondering who those blokes were in the show hook at the beginning, it's a clip from the Burning Boots Podcast. That's the podcast I mentioned in last week's episode. I was amused at being called highbrow, even if only out of humor. So I decided to have a little fun and give a playful hat tip for the mention. So check them out. Hey, great news. Liberty Dad is now officially on a podcast hosting service. That means you'll be able to listen through your favorite podcast service, such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others, and with your favorite podcast app. And other first, starting in this episode, I'll have a segment at the end of the week called Weekly Bill Review, where I'll spend about five minutes discussing a current bill of interest. This week, I'm discussing the recent gun rally last Monday in Virginia, you know, The scary one that really wasn't? So let's get right into it. If you were paying attention to the media before the Virginia gun rally, then you know there was a lot of speculation of violence. Let me give you just a few headlines in the days leading up to the rally. Virginia governor declares state of emergency ahead of a gun rights rally. NPR, January 15th. The Virginia gun rights rally raises fears of violence. Explained. Vox. January 17th. As gun right rally looms in Virginia, Richmond residents fear another Charlottesville. NBC News, January 19th. And then there's this opinion piece the day after from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Call Richmond's MLK Day gun rally what it was, an outbreak of terrorism on American soil. And the Twitterverse was even less kind where you find quite a few people referencing the Virginia rally as a, quote, white nationalist rally, among other factually incorrect and insipid tweets. First and foremost, let's just get this right out up front. Free speech is great. The freedom of press is great. Everyone who publicly commented in the days leading up, the day of, and in the days following were well within their First Amendment rights. I wouldn't have it any other way. And no buts. Flat out. I'm glad there was a platform for people to speak their mind. I'm discussing an opposing view on this podcast because the answer to speech you disagree with is more speech. Here's the problem I have with much of the conversation about the Virginia rally, especially in the days leading up to the rally. It's a completely made-up narrative that was not driven by a speck of sound evidence. A lot of people were comparing this rally to the Charlottesville rally, and they were expecting 
a similar outcome, maybe one even worse. Here's where people made their mistake. The Charlottesville rally was organized by two individuals known to be white nationalists or at least associated with them. Now, admittedly, I say that because I didn't spend a lot of time researching who they were, but the consensus seems to be they very much are. The Virginia gun rally was organized by the Virginia Citizens Defense League, VCDL, a gun rights pressure group. And the VCDL has been hosting this rally, officially known as Lobby Day, annually. Researching it, it appears Lobby Day has been a thing since at least 2015. So already, comparisons are starting off wildly inaccurate. This leads me to my first question that I want to answer. Why hold the event on Martin Luther King Jr. Day? And this is a big one. So many tweets and comments came from people suggesting or outright saying it was wrong, even racist. I searched very hard for an answer, and the best I could come up with was from a New York Times article about the man in charge of VCDL. His name is Mr. Van Cleve. And the article states, quote, Mr. Van Cleve has said that he expects as many as 50,000 people to show up to support gun rights on Monday, the traditional lobbying day at Virginia's state capitol, which is held on the holiday for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday because so many people are off work, end quote. Have you ever tried to go to a political rally or even, say, speak to some of your representatives? It generally requires time from work, which is an encumbrance to many people. Most, if not all, city council meetings occur during the week and during regular work hours. So it really makes sense if you want to hold a rally at your state's capital and have the maximum attendee count, do it on a day when many people already have it off. This also goes toward the narrative I observed, that it was either wrong or aggressive posturing towards minorities to hold a rally on MLK's day of observance. And while you might argue that it was wrong to hold it on the day celebrating a man who advocated peace, you have to first identify why that day was chosen by its organizers. If you had, and again, according to the New York Times article, you would have learned it was chosen to give more people an opportunity to engage in their First Amendment right to protest. You would also have discovered that people who attended weren't there to protest their right to engage in violence, but rather self-defense. That is a very important distinction, and there is evidence of this. A myriad of images and videos exist where the message is very clearly about protecting the right to own firearms for self-defense. This is what I'm talking about when I say the narrative is made up and lacks evidence. People are communicating in various ways about what they think, not what they have evidence for. Again, freedom of speech. I will absolutely defend their right to say what they want, whether they're actually right, whether they just think they're right, or whether they're knowingly wrong. Speaking of freedom of speech, a lot of people criticized the heavy use of MLK quotes in support of the rally. Now, this includes people that were at the rally and those who were observing from afar. And there are different reasons. I think it would be unfair to lump them all together, though. Some people felt the black community's history in the U.S. and MLK's efforts to bring blacks to equal standing with whites 
made his quotes rather off-limits. Others felt that because the crowd was overwhelmingly white and because they were heavily armed, that it was somehow a display of racial power. But let's consider two excerpts from Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. In the first, he dreams that, quote, on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Then, toward the end, and this one is extremely important, I think, he says, quote, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be free to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. Think about those words for a moment. At the end of Dr. King's speech, in saying, when freedom is allowed to ring, black men and white men will be able to join hands and sing the words of an old spiritual, a spiritual sung by members of the black community that was describing the hardships of slavery. Now, if Dr. King's vision was that whites would partake in songs describing the hardships of slavery, or that children of slaves and slave owners, or children of slave owners, would sit at the table of brotherhood, exactly what is the justification to limit quoting the very same man? A better question may be, if not to bring blacks and whites together such that each could partake in the other's identity, what exactly was he fighting for? In 1963, whites and blacks already had, that is yours, this is mine. Dr. King was fighting for something different. There are members of the black community who believe the rally in Virginia, while dominated by white people, was very much welcoming to the black community. You can find a bunch of interviews on YouTube and Twitter. I came across one such person, Antonia Okafor Cover, I hope I got her name right, the director of outreach for Gun Owners of America, an NRA alternative. Let's hear what she had to say. Yeah, uh, Ainsley, Steve, Pete, uh, this was by far, hands down, the worst white supremacist rally I've ever seen. Uh, there were people shaking my hand. Uh, I mean, they even let me speak, um, for goodness sakes, so over 20,000 people there. So it's almost as if MLK's dream to uh, see that people judge people based on the content of their character and not the color of their skin has actually become reality. Sure. And this was just uh, an example of exemplifying that whole thing. I very much agree. That doesn't mean that race relations are all worked out. And it doesn't mean there aren't pockets within the U.S. that still really need some work. However, on net balance, yes, people do judge more on the content of character and less on the color of skin. If the rally doesn't confirm one community using it as a show of power towards another community, and, as evidence showed, it doesn't show that people with guns are inherently dangerous in large numbers, then what does it tell us? When you step aside from what you think you know and take time to just review the rally from the perspective of the participants, I think the rally tells you a lot.
first and foremost, the violence that was expected to happen didn't. That's no accident. Governor Ralph Northam claims his team successfully de-escalated a potential and volatile situation. But there is no evidence of any potential violence. It was only large numbers of people with guns, and that in itself is not evidence. I do want to take a moment to address one thing here. Talk of Boogaloo and a civil war. If you're not on the up and up, Boogaloo is effectively the same term as civil war, but most people direct it at the government, and specifically an event where the government has overstepped their boundaries and forced citizens to push back. But instead of pushing back at the ballot box, the notion is force is met with force. It's fair to say there were a lot of hashtags and references to both a civil war and boogaloo. Other than qualified it as freedom of speech, I'm not going to defend its usage. I don't go around talking about the boogaloo or a coming civil war. In fact, the whole reason this podcast exists is to help point political conversation in a different direction. Now, I would argue most people posting about the boogaloo are the ones you actually have to worry about the least. Growing up, that's been my experience. The mouthiest ones are the ones who run first. That's not a challenge to anyone, just an observation. And there are certainly those who are both mouthy and worrisome. I would also argue on the internet for the vast majority of people, such language amounts to nothing more than theatrics. If you're one of those boogaloo posters, I would encourage you to find something more productive to do. Or not. The second thing the rally, or lobby day, again, that's its actual name, the second thing it tells us is that white people with guns, and I'm going on how others reference them here, white people with guns are not interested in posturing and looking menacing against minorities. Now, I didn't go to the rally. Rallies are in protest are not my thing. I also didn't spend a week thoroughly investigating every corner of the internet. I did keep up a little bit on Facebook and Twitter. I read various scary articles and when I was on Twitter, followed a lot of the unsavory tweets all the way through, reading some of the responses. And I also watched a few videos from the actual event. Here is what I observed. The people promoting fear did so based on perception, not experience. The people who reported positively, like Antonia Okafor Cover, the outreach director for Gun Owners of America, they reported solidarity based on experience. And that is the narrative that comes bearing evidence. Which brings me to my last question. How should we discuss this with friends and family, people on the internet, and so forth? Well, I'm a big believer that how we deliver the message is more responsible for what people take away than how much it is that we know about any given and contentious topic. I think by far the best messaging impact comes from people celebrating what a great event the rally was. It was great that so many people showed up, peacefully protested, they protested a hot topic on top of that, and with guns, and no, not a single shot was fired. Not only was the rally peaceful, but attendees cleaned up their trash after. And not only cleaned up their trash, but left areas better than they were when they first arrived. 
I kid you not. There are literally news clips on YouTube where local reporters were speaking with residents who said they noticed a vast difference in the cleanliness after the rally was over. Contrast that with the Occupy Wall Street rallies. But even more, celebrate it as another one. Another one. Because it is. Ask yourself, is this really the first rally where people showed up with a lot of guns? It may certainly have been the largest, but definitely not the first. And remember the Tea Party? Now, their protests were broader in scope, but they too had a reputation for remaining peaceful and cleaning up after themselves. It's not always true, and I'm sure you can find an example that shows it. But the message to friends and family should be this. Yes, there was a rally, and of course it was peaceful. And yes, people cleaned up after themselves. These aren't angry people out to intimidate minorities or threaten people with their giant collection of firearms. These are good people who feel they are being punished for what a handful of people have done. So they came out and made their voice heard in a large group in the way the First Amendment protects. And that's it. Don't argue as much as just keep telling people, here's what I saw. Because I think what happens is people get notions and then headlines like what I read at the beginning reinforce those notions. We live in an age where audio and video can literally be streamed live by anyone with a phone and a simple data plan. We live in an age where the record of an event is often captured by multitudes of people, everyday people. It's time to start getting that information out and challenging the narrative. But again, it's not about arguing with your friend. It's really just about flooding the internet with the truth of what happened. The more people see it, the sooner they will have to confront their own biases, no arguments involved. If you do get into a debate, don't be rude. Just keep telling people what you've seen and how you understand that to be a lot more common and unfortunately a lot less reported than people realize. And that's all I have on this topic, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it, and now it's time for our next segment. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. In this segment, I discuss a bill of interest. It could be a local, state, or national bill. Since cities and states often get ideas from other cities and states, I encourage you to keep listening, even if the bill isn't applicable to you. On today's menu, Florida House Bill HB 1059, Parental Rights. This is being touted as the Parental Bill of Rights. Here is the bill's summary. Provides parental rights relating to a minor child's education, upbringing, and health care. Provides school district, health care practitioner, hospital requirements, and specified penalties. Huh. Well, that sounds good. And with parents sometimes finding themselves in trouble for what seems like trivial things, a bill of rights seems very timely. Not so fast. The bill has more in it than time allotted in this segment, so I'll just give you a few highlights and commentary. I encourage you to review the bill yourself and draw your own conclusion. Maybe you agree, maybe not. The more informed you are, the better. So here, in Section 5.1, Part E, it says, quote, The right to make health care decisions for his or her minor child unless otherwise prohibited by law. End quote. But it comes with the string attached. Listen in there unless otherwise prohibited by law. Okay, let's go to the next one. 
Section 5.1, Part F. It says, quote, The right to access and review all medical records of his or her minor child, unless prohibited by law, or if the parent is the subject of an investigation of a crime committed against the minor child and a law enforcement agency or official requests that the information not be released, end quote. Okay, so again, we have the same strings attached, the unless prohibited by law. And then the additional stipulation that if the parent is the subject of the investigation. The way I read unless prohibited by law, it's problematic because if this bill passes, later legislators can simply pass legislation that supersedes these rights under some given reason. This last one is particularly serious. Again, from section 5.1, but now we're in part I. Quote, the right to consent in writing before the state or any of its political subdivisions makes a video or voice recording of his or her minor child unless such recording is made during or is part of a court proceeding or is made as a part of a forensic interview in a criminal or Department of Children and Families investigations or is to be used solely for the following purposes, end quote. And it goes on to list what circumstances this right is not applicable in the very last part. But let's take a closer look at what I just read. Again, with the word unless. Here, that unless is if it is part of a court proceeding. So, maybe a divorce? Also, unless is used as part of a forensic interview in a criminal or Department of Children and Families investigation. In other words, if you are being investigated, they can interview and record your child without your permission or presumably even your knowledge. Now, if you're a listener of Tom Woods, another great podcast, I encourage you to listen to his episode number 457 titled Child Protective Services, A Whistleblower Speaks Out. His guest stresses not permitting CPS to interview your child. Apparently, CPS is really good at leading children and then presenting that as evidence without the recording. Scary stuff. It finally lists five additional situations. Remember at the very end where it says, uh, for the following purposes? It lists five additional situations. Most of them are related to being on school grounds. The only one I wouldn't object to is security or surveillance of school grounds or property. But they still should be required to tell you when and where these recordings take place. However, if they don't need your consent, then presumably they don't even need to tell you. So it's still a problem. There's a lot more in the bill, and I encourage you to go and read it yourself. You can find the link on the show notes page. And that wraps it up for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to next week's episode. Don't forget to find me on Facebook at Liberty Dad and on Twitter at DL underscore Liberty Dad. Catch you next time and I'm out. <laughs>